Welcome to the latest episode of Mistakes Were Made with me, Chris Slowly, the editor of CityWire Selector. And me, as always, Frank Talbot. Now, I'm not going to keep this going backwards and forwards because you called us the dream team last time and Alex took offence, but we're here, we're doing this. We've got a great guest this week, I think. I think we are finding some absolute gems. So this week we were joined by the Emerging Markets pioneer, Mark Mobius, who made his name at Franklin Templeton. He's now going it alone with his own fund house. Frank, what did you make of him? Yeah, it was great. It's actually the first time I've spoken to to Mark. As you say, one of the real pioneers, the vanguard of uh, investing in emerging markets, very much from a, from an asset manager, Western asset manager perspective. You know, you can see that the, the way he talks about in you know, life in the eighties that he he really did um, make it others for, to reap the others easier to reap the rewards rather in the future. Yeah, and also, I mean, it's very easy to say with Emerging Markets Manager, and I think I said this with Raphael, he really jumps around from place to place. He's got stories from loads of different markets. We'll get on to what his big mistake was. I don't want to preface that too much because I think as Alan, our producer, pointed out, our face has changed quite considerably as he got to the conclusion. But just as a heads up, Frank, do you want to give a, a disclaimer, a warning? Yeah, it's just a, it's a pretty chilling tale of, of corruption in emerging markets and, uh, you know, not for the faint-hearted. Okay, without giving too much away, here's Mark Mobius. Our guest today is the only guest we've had so far that I've also owned a USB flash drive in the image of, and perhaps more famously, one of the most renowned emerging markets managers and investors in the globe, I'd say. So Mark Mobius, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for that nice introduction. Pleasure meeting you. Excellent. Well, thank you for taking the time. So let's get right to the meat of the matter. This is Mistakes Were Made. So Mark Mobius, what is the biggest investment mistake you've ever made? And what did you do about it? Uh, probably the biggest one was uh, uh, having faith in a company. This was in Hong Kong in the 80s when, uh, uh, you know, the market was pretty active. And there was a company called Carrion. Okay. At that time, I was an uh, analyst for a brokerage company called Vickers da Costa. And uh, I met one, uh, you know, I was teaching at the Chinese University at the time. And I met one of my students. On, on the street and he said, gee, you know, I'm working for this company called Carrion. And I've been reading about Carrion. It had a tremendous uh, coverage in the newspapers because of the property deals they were doing. Uh, one famous deal they did was buying, uh, I think it was Bank of America building. And then a year later, selling it for double what they paid. Uh, and they were raising money from all over the place. and. Uh, it you know, looked like an incredible investment if everybody's running into it. And I figured, gee, it sounds pretty good. And my colleague sitting next to me was assigned to uh, do uh, coverage on the company. Uh, and I said, oh yeah, it's a great deal you're doing there. But little did I know that this was really a, a hyped uh, deal and the company was uh, sitting on a, a hill of sand. I mean, basically they were using money from uh, uh, Bank Bumiputra in Malaysia. Bank Bumiputra means sons of the soil. And the bank was set up to fund the farmers in Thailand, but in uh, Malaysia, but they were using this money to speculate in the Hong Kong market. And of course, eventually this whole thing came crashing down. The accountant for the firm was found at the bottom of a swimming pool in the peak in Hong Kong. And the guy who was sent from Malaysia to investigate was found face down in a rice paddy in the new territories. So this is a, a good example of where, you know, you, 
you believe the hype and you really don't look at what's behind and ask the right questions in terms of like, where did this money come from? And how can you double your money in one year in a property? How can that happen? Of course, they were buying from themselves. But that's an example of, you know, not doing enough investigation. Yeah, so, so with the mistake here, you bumped into your friend, he told you about the company, you'd already been looking at it and, and the piece of information that he gave you, he worked for them, sort of affirmed your views, you were looking for that positive bias? Exactly, I mean, everything looked great, the company was high flying, they were getting incredible publicity, they were buying things all over the place, they bought restaurants, they bought all the taxi cab licenses in Hong Kong, and renamed them Carry and Taxi and so forth. So, you know, this all looked like an incredible uh, success story. But the reality was that uh, it was built on, a, you know, basically, well, you might say almost like a Ponzi scheme because what they were doing is uh, booking all these incredible profits and then going to the banks and borrowing from the banks to do more and more deals. So that was, uh, the mistake was that we didn't look more closely as number one, source of their funds. And number two, uh, how could they be doing these incredible deals when other people were not? You exceptionally well-traveled, Mark. So have you encountered this in other markets as well? Was this a one-off or did this give you enough sort of fodder to think, right, I can spot the warning signs here. I'm not gonna have a repeat of this. And you were able to get out early when you saw these problems arising. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was a lesson. Then of course, after that, uh, when I started managing money, of course, I was working for a brokerage firm at that time. Uh, but after we started, I started actually managing uh, money. I, uh, those are the questions I asked. I said, okay, where's the money coming from? How are the profits being made? Are these profits legitimate or manufactured, etc.? But you, you know, you can't, um, uh, it's very difficult to escape uh, when when the company is deliberately misleading you uh, because they, they're in cahoots with the accountants and lawyers. And you know, just like the scandals you've seen in America, uh, the audited accounts look great, you know? Look, you know, Enron, everything was going great, but then uh, in reality, it was built on, a, you know, on sand. Emerald so, was flashing in my head the whole time you were saying that. There were so many similarities with Emerald and the idea that everybody was in on it. So it's a big warning sign. Exactly, exactly. When everybody's excited, um, you know, better watch out. As a matter of fact, interesting, you know, one of the lessons I learned is that, for example, in this new fund that we have, uh, we don't invest in companies where, where, that are very popular, that are in an index. Uh, we try to avoid index stocks. And we try to go to companies on the medium size because they're usually better to understand that there's less smoke, you know, you can sure. dig down and find out what's really happening. Sure. So can you spin this into a positive for us, Mark? These days, are there less scams in emerging markets? No, <laughs> there's, there's, scams. there's scams all over the place. <laughs> what's the you biggest scam, Mark? What, what, what stands out for you then? Because I know we were going to get onto this because you said Bitcoin is a bit like a religion. I'm not saying that's a scam, but we, it's something we're going to come on to. Where are the biggest scams in emerging markets at the moment? Well, I would say it's uh, connected to uh, cryptocurrency and digitization generally, I would say, because there's a lot of, 
IPOs based on fintech, uh, digitization, uh, things like that. I would say that's probably where you're going to find the most problems. But you know, these things are going on all the time in every country, whether it's emerging or developed. Uh, you're going to find these these situations. And uh, when it's easy money, you know, it looks like easy money. You better watch out. Usually. What do you what do you make, Mark? We're recording this a couple of days after the Rivian IPO. What do you what do you make of a car company being valued at that rate without delivering any vehicles? Well, that's I mean, this is why what I worry about because you see people really gambling on the hope of something. Now, nothing wrong with that. I mean, if you're running a diversified portfolio and you want to you find an idea that looks good and you think has a great future and it's managed by a group of people that are really uh, on top of things, uh, fine, you know, you can take that, that chance. But usually that should be left for the venture capitalists. In other words, I, I'm against having companies being listed which are in that position where they're not really not making money yet. And, uh, you know, they're drawing in retail investors and it can be very, very dangerous, let's say. so. So I, I would say away, basically, you know, in our portfolio, we don't buy any company that's losing money because you don't know what's going to happen next year, the year after they could continue losing money, you know, so it doesn't make sense. And there's so many good companies that are earning money. Why go, go after these companies that are losing money? That's, that's the point. I remember, Mark, being at the launch of your boutique in 2018. I haven't got that in my notes. I should have that in my notes. That's a mistake on my part. But at the roundtable that we you did to launch it, you talked about engagement and going into underperforming companies. So not ones that are losing money, but perhaps ones that aren't realizing their gains. And you talked about like a Romanian electricity provider. Is that correct? These sorts of companies where you've taken a real big swing at a company that's not doing what it should be. Are there mistakes there as well? Or has that always been largely successful? Uh, yeah, our whole premise was that uh, we want to get into companies where we can uh, engage. And when we say engage, we mean that in a friendly way, not, not an aggressive way. So before we invest in a company, we talk to the management and say, look, are you willing to engage with us to improve corporate governance, to improve generally the ESG profile of the company and the culture of the company? And if they say no, then we don't invest. It's just as simple as that. So, so far, it's worked out very, very well because we've been able to get companies that are, you know, willing to really work with us and uh, uh, cooperate. Uh, and what I try to explain to people is that, you know, they call it ESG now, uh, but in reality, it's risk control. It's something that we've been doing from the very beginning. I mean, when we invested in a mining company in Latin America, we, we had to look at whether the company was polluting the environment or not. That's that sort of thing, you know what I mean? So, uh, it's, it's something that's really critical. And of course, now the numbers are coming out and it shows that companies with a good ESG score uh, tend to perform better. So it, it's really part and parcel of what we do now. Um, and by the way, one of the reasons why we focus on smaller and medium-sized companies is that usually these are the companies more willing to engage with outside investors. And it, it's worked out very well. Just sticking with the, the boutique element of things, Mark, because you did decide to go out on your own um, after several decades with Franklin Templeton. 
Can we get into that? I mean, was there any ever feeling that you might want to sit back, that you'd done enough, that you'd been perhaps burnt a few times, but also made your winnings and it was time to sit on a beach and read a book? <laughs> no, I mean, it's because, you know, I love what I do. I love uh, investing. And of course, you know, I'm investing my own money as well. You know, this this funny, you might say my my fund, the two funds we have in which I, I'm both invested are sort of the family office, so to speak. So, you know, we have outside investors, but I also invest, uh, me and my partner, Carl Hardenberg, invest our own money. So that was part of it. You know, I wanted to watch after my own money. Uh, but also uh, with Franklin Templeton, I had an incredible career, as you know, we were managing an uh, incredible amount of money. We, at one point, it was $60 billion. Um, and I had offices all over the world. But the problem when you're running these large funds, uh, there is a tendency to be forced into uh, the index stocks. So you find yourself indexing your portfolio. Uh, that's fine, you know, uh, and you can't perform. But I found that it would be nice to try out something smaller where I could really focus on the governance and get away from index stocks. So for example, in our portfolio, I think we have one index stock, stock that's about it. So, so all off benchmark except one position. Yeah, in other words, we don't uh, benchmark against it. Of course, we have to show clients what we're doing against the index, but we don't think that way. In other words, when we invest, we're not looking at the index, you know what I mean? And therefore we can be more independent. So if you look, for example, at the breakdown of our portfolio, you'll see uh, India and Taiwan are the biggest allocations, which is completely different from any index where you'll see China at the, at the top, you know? So that's an example of, you know, what, the way we think. Uh, now, of course, I'm not denigrating uh, the large index funds. Some of them do quite well. And a lot of people like to buy ETFs, et cetera. But I do urge people to uh, do a combination of, you know, perhaps an index fund, but also a fund that uh, is not following the index and is not related to the index. When you mentioned there about when you were running giant funds at Franklin Templeton and you did that for several decades and you had huge success. I remember in research for this, I saw the, the accolades that you won at the start of the 90s. You won a huge amount of stuff. And then there were periods of difficulty and periods of challenges. What, where would you say um, you were especially tested during that period? Was it in specific crises or was it in something more technical that was going on within your markets? Well, it was usually when the market was doing very well, uh, because that was when you uh, got more money to manage. And one of the uh, one of the mistakes uh, that is made at that time is for by investors, by the way, is to go into the market when things are going, looking great, you know, and going out when things don't look good, good when the performance is not good. So. The problem you're facing when you're running uh, funds, big funds like that, is that your uh, investors tell you, look, uh, you got to be, I notice you've got 5% in cash. What the hell are you doing? Uh, you know, I'm giving you money to manage. You've got to be in the market. See, that's when you have real problems because then you're in a situation where you're forced to invest, even though you may find it difficult 
to get good bargains, you know. Is that so where it comes back to the point about being forced to buy the beta and that idea that you just have to buy what's out there because you've got clients pressuring you to put money to work? Exactly, exactly. So that's, that's the, that, I would say that's where we had the biggest uh, pressure, you know, that was when it was most difficult. At, at the same time, Mark, I've been following your, your portfolios for a number of years, and there have been points in history where you've gone big into individual countries that, that might seem like they're a small weight in the Asia Pac index or whatever it is that you were following at the time. And, and you've put 20% in Thailand or Vietnam when, when no one else is backing it. Have they ever been some of your mistakes, the sort of political risk, the country risk that you take on board? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's been a lot of that. A good example of that is um, uh, we were in Venezuela. Uh, and of course, the Chavez, and Chavez came in, you know, the dictator Chavez. Uh, uh, the good news is that when he announced that he was going to start taking over companies, uh, I immediately sold out. Um, and th that was, you know, a good move. But in the meantime, uh, the performance was not very good because this was building and the revolution was building up. So we had to pay attention to that. And, you know, we, we, in other words, sometimes the political issues are so great that you've just got to uh, get out because the total environment is going to change. Now, it doesn't mean we don't get into politically uh, difficult countries because if the market is still operating, and our money is not going to be confiscated like they did in Venezuela, then you can very often make good money uh, because uh, companies that are able to negotiate the political difficulties can do quite well. So it depends on the individual situation. And again, the emphasis should always be on the individual company rather than uh, the country. And most often, if we were heavily overweight in a country, it wasn't because we were making a bet on the country, but on the company that we found in that country, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Well, you've segued onto it slightly because we don't want this to just be a, a, a pile on of everything that's gone wrong over a very lengthy and, and successful career. What has been a success? And if you had any particularly strong, like contrarian calls, have you done anything that your investors might have been screaming at you down the phone? like? much in the same way they were annoyed at you having 5% cash, they might be saying, why are you exposed here? And it turned out it was the right call all along. Uh, yeah, probably a good example of that is Vietnam. You know, we, we were one of the first uh, to go into Vietnam and that turned out to be an incredible success. Uh, and many people at the time thought this was uh, too dangerous, you know, it was not uh, a thing to do because of the political uh, uncertainty, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but uh, that turned out to be a very good good move. When was that, Mark? Was that recently or was that earlier? When, when did you oh, get no, that was when I was when I was at Franklin Temple and that must have been about, what, 10 years ago. Oh, wow, uh, well ahead of the curve. Back when it was yeah, sort of the new China yeah. trade. Yeah, that was uh, really, uh, that was when um, uh, we went into uh, a Vietnam dairy. Uh, which is a dairy company, actually owned by the government, but uh, they, you know, really did a terrific job in managing the company, managed by a woman. And uh, in fact, we're now we're still invested in that company. What are some of uh, Mark? What are some of your top tips 
for avoiding mistakes in a lengthy career. So now, now you reflect back on it, the things that you just don't do, the things, the rules that you won't break. The first thing is, you know, uh, visit the company, get to know them, get to know the management, uh, and see what the reputation of the management is. Uh, you can do that by uh, not only talking to the staff of the company, but also their competitors. Uh, that can give you a pretty good idea of what, what kind of management you're dealing with. Uh, that's the first thing. The second thing is that pay attention to the ESG plus C, you know, see how they're doing and how um, uh, reactive they are to ESG concerns, uh, because that means you've, you've got some risk control in place. And of course, at the end of the day, uh, for listed companies, we basically look at three characteristics. One, in addition to the ESG, what I was talking about, uh, one is of course debt. Stay away from companies that have a high debt. It's just not, not worth the risk. Uh, secondly, uh, look at companies that have a high return on capital. Because if they have a high return on capital, uh, chances are they're not gonna have much debt. It's interesting to see how uh, there's a correlation between these two things. And of course, you've gotta pay attention to earnings per share growth. You've gotta have a company that uh, has been growing its earnings per share and looks like it's gonna to continue to do so. That's the kind of thing you want. So these are the things I would say are most important, but more and more we realize that the, the key is uh, the people behind the company. What kind of people are you dealing with? Fantastic. Mark, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Okay, very good. Thanks. So there we have it. Mark Mobius, all the way from Dubai. It took me a while to work out where he was calling in from because he kept sort of jumping around. Time zones were confusing. What do you think, Frank? I mean, we, we did in the intro, we talked about the the strangeness of the tale and the corruption. What else stood out for you? Yeah, obviously that, that you know, that really that really hit home in many ways. But I think other, other things around the edges, the fact that the scams, the scams aren't gone. And that's pretty scary in and of itself. And if he's still saying that after however many years investing in emerging markets, that's uh, that's pretty frightening. Also, the, the dangers of investing in companies which, which don't make any money, you know, mentioning no names. Rivian, Lucid Motors. Mentioning several names. But I think one thing that I was one thing I was slightly worried about was how much I mentioned his age. I hopefully didn't offend him on that front. I did get it wrong and then he corrected me. But it does just show how some of these things don't go away. Like you said, corruption is seemingly a, a continued theme in the emerging markets, and even as he's got older and wiser, it's something he's had to battle against and you can still get tripped up by. Yeah, he was he was definitely very honest about that. I liked also that he was very frank, no pun intended, about the uh, the trials of running large amounts of money in rapidly growing emerging markets funds, where often the liquidity just isn't there to deploy and the pressure that big tif ticket investors will exert on a fund manager, even a fund manager of his note, in order to invest and make a trade that perhaps he really didn't want to make. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that came back to the whole point we had about him just buying beta because he had so much capital to put to work. And now at Mobius Capital Partners, he's doing it on a smaller scale. I remember, I'm not sure if I um, should have brought attention to the fact that he had gone alone and he was now having to book his own flights and he didn't have the oversight that Franklin Templeton used to give him. But he seems freer. He seems willing to, to talk much more openly. And I think that's massive benefit for us from our side of things. Yeah, I'll have to take your word for that, Chris. You're the one he's interviewed him many times before. But uh, yeah, he's certainly 
wasn't guarded in in any way about the mistakes that that he'd come across during his time. Well, I thought it was great. Well, so that's it from me for the time being. So I've been Chris Slowly, the editor of City Selector. And I'm Frank Talbot. Thank you.